Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Connor Cunningham. He is Associate Professor in Theology and Philosophy at the Faculty of Arts at the University of Nottingham. He is interested in metaphysics, epistemology, science, and religion, and today we're going to focus mostly on nihilism and theology and also a little bit on evolutionary theory. So, Dr. Cunningham, welcome to the show. It's a huge pleasure to everyone. Thank you very much for having me. So, I would like to first start by asking you, because you work, of course, on in theology, and what are some of the main differences that you find between theology and philosophy also because historically we've had some very prominent names who were both theologians and philosophers right you know i mean these terms are quite artificial i mean Mm -hmm. in the end one has to remember that it was plato who coined the term theology Mm -hmm. and that was later used by aristotle uh, his student and theology for plato just meant first philosophy which actually later uh, became named metaphysics. So theology actually is philosophy. But in modernity, these things have divided up into almost silos uh, sometimes, usually for cultural reasons rather than truly intellectual ones. Just like the word scientist. You probably know this, Ricardo, that it was when he coined in 1833. There was no scientists before 1833. Uh, and it was resisted as a term until around the First World War. Uh, Darwin himself is always a natural philosopher. And I actually think in the 21st century, we're seeing a move back from the notion of scientist to natural philosophy. And that brings me to the point between philosophy and theology. I think, it, as I said, I think it's an artificial distinction, except to say that there are aspects to theology which render it, well, make it stand out to some degree. And these can be simply put, there's something called, I don't know if you know this term, uh, Aristotle's term, actually, uh, subalternation. Have you ever heard of this term? Uh, I don't think so, no. So, you know, um, if you go to the opticians mm-hmm. and you try to see how your eyesight's doing and the, the optician measures your eyes and thinks, oh, right, okay, Ricardo needs these glasses. I don't know if you do or not, but needs these glasses and this strength. And so the optician does their job. That's fine. You go away with your prescription, you get your spectacles and all's done. But of course, the optician during the whole procedure is using logics of which they're not giving any account. Geometry, mathematics, physics, that's all pregnant with borrowed discourse of which not even explicitly aware. That's called subalternation. One discipline to function is using logics from other disciplines but to function, it doesn't bother giving an account of them. It presumes mm. them. Just like a mathematician will posit an axiom and then work out a proof. Right. So the principles yeah. of one discipline are very often borrowed from another discipline. But the way it works, uh, I'll come back to the notion of a university in a minute, is that they don't. They don't have to give waste energy or time. Like you would want your, your, your uh, optician going, now, let me figure out, you know, Euclidean geometry here, and let's go through the facts of that, because you, you would never get your glasses, would you, your spectacles? So subjects work by borrowed logics. Theology, certainly for Aquinas, methodologically, its axioms, its, its borrowed logic comes from God, because what you might call crudely revelation, because he thinks that reason alone will never get to something like the Trinity or the Incarnation. Uh, those have to be borrowed logics. And when you have those axioms, if you like, you can work out the logical coherence and explanatory power of that. But you know, but then he thinks he makes the flip and goes, because these borrowed logics don't come from the physicist next door, you know, Jimmy, or the mathematician next door, Susie, but come from God, therefore they're actually more trustworthy and therefore their explanatory worth, it becomes more apparent. But all subjects have borrowed logics Theology's borrowed logics are from God. That's it. Because he thinks you can work out lots of things through pure reason, if there be such a thing. Um, but you will not get to these transcendent, transcendent truths such as the Trinity by reason alone. It's too mad to get there on your own. They have to be given to you, and then you work out the coherence. 
So that's probably the main striking difference. And I suppose there's more of an honesty to theology than other subjects, because by definition, it's reflexively aware that it has borrowed logics, whereas most other subjects can get a bit vain and pompous and pretend that they're fully autonomous, like physics can pretend it's not borrowing from mathematics or and so forth. Because, oh, no, physics is the master discourse. We're totally autonomous, autarchical master discipline. We're going to create a theory of everything and subsume all other uh, discourse. But then you point out, hold on a minute, you're borrowing mathematics. You're not autonomous. You're not, not an island. And the physicist, any physicist that, that does that, it gets out of bed in the morning, motivated by desire to go to the lab to, to conduct experiments, does so for a reason, a purpose. He, he, they're after truth, which they think is good rather than falsehood, and even an equation that might be beautiful. They are replete, the actual scientist is replete with other discourse and other disciplines. It's pregnant with these, but vanity can lead one to the ideological stance that one is fully autonomous. Whereas theology, by definition, has, is, a, is a, a weaving together of faith and reason, uh, and therefore it's more reflexively, as I said, self-consciously, and therefore less ideologically aware of its dependency. Mm -hmm. Does that make but sense, Ricardo? Uh, yes, it makes sense, but uh, perhaps this is uh, uh, an oversimplistic view of things, but uh, particularly today, when people think about the theology, they necessarily think that it is um, very tied with religion and with religious assumptions about metaphysics and men, uh, morality, ethics, and many other sorts of uh, sub-disciplines that are also part of philosophy. So um, but would it make sense to say that theology is fundamentally religious and philosophy is not or does not need to be? Or is that too... It's a hard one. I mean... I think you're correct, culturally speaking, in late modernity, but that's just because of conditioning. Mm -hmm. It's not because of any intellectual uh, intellectual arguments. I mean, theology etymologically just means God talk, theologos, logi, mm -hmm. like biology for biology or psychology. It's the logi at the end, which is the reasoning about the previous clause, you know, half of it. So bios, zoology, psychology, theology, talk about the subjects, so it's talk about God. And philosophy is love of wisdom. So in a way, from Plato onwards, it is religious insofar as it's seeking that which is transcendent, the good for Plato, the unmoved mover for uh, Aristotle. Now, I, culturally, and for sociological reasons, I would argue, uh, yes, methodology these days, quite often, or the less so more now, certainly for the most of the 20th century, probably not the 21st, because there's been a big return to Plato and Aristotle um, and a richer form of metaphysics rather than the skinny form that was on show for many decades in the 20th century. Uh, Sophia, of course, wisdom, you know, fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and the file of Sophia, the wisdom literature in scriptures and so forth. So philosophy was always inherently religious, not confessional, but seeking the transcendent. Uh, as I said, culturally, nowadays, well, it's a bit like one always has to remember that people will say in the Middle Ages, all the, you know, all the sheep went to church. And that's maybe correct. But today, all the sheep don't go to church. The sheep remain. The herd follows. So it's a sociological, not an intellectual position, um, I would argue. And all the best philosophy at the moment, as I say, is doing a sort of resourcement back to the sources, to use Charles Pegues' phrase, of Plato and Aristotle. For example, Lloyd Gerson from University of Toronto's brilliant new book out, Plato and Naturalism, provides a scathing critique of modern philosophy, uh, which he says simply falls apart as philosophy in the absence of Platonism. Uh, and I think that's true. So, yes, sociologically, you're correct. Theology is more reflexively uh, linked to uh, a religion. Uh, sociologically, philosophy nowadays somewhat is less so. But I, again, I would emphasize, I'd say that most of that is conditioning rather than intellectual. 
but uh, is that something that academically speaking uh, philosophers uh, recognize or is that a position that you particularly have or how does it uh, a bit of both I, I think I, well if you look at 20th century philosophy most of it was a disaster and it didn't prove anything it didn't achieve anything very much obviously there are exceptions to that but I think the, the, the paradigm began to change. You had this sort of logical positivist at the beginning, and then the ordinary language philosophy and all this sort of stuff, and Aquinian philosophy, and uh, right up to people like Lewis and Armstrong and so forth, which is really driven by a Humean view of the world, um, David Hume, a Humean uh, view of the world. Mm -hmm. And it, it sort of discovered it, that when I went to the cupboard after a few decades, it was pretty bare. And there was a renaissance, I think maybe beginning with Strawson's book in the 50s on individuals, but then in the 90s, 1990s book, uh, Peter van Wagen's Material Beings, but then a massive renaissance in near Aristotelian Platonic philosophy, alongside the beginnings of things like philosophy of chemistry for the first time, which had a huge growth in the 90s and then up to today. Uh, at the same time, science was changing from a more less atomistic a democrat like democritus is atoms atomistic thinking corpuscularian uh and was moving away to more systems-based analyses topology systems and variations of scale uh, and so forth and i think this went in concert where philosophy realized it was going to actually answer any questions in any rich manner it had to push back towards the notion of uh, answering asking big questions rather than skinny emaciated questions which are a bit like sudoku Philosophy came like a, a, a Sudoku with a degree attached to it. And so you certainly be philosophy in the 20th century was divided up into two camps. After Husserl, Edmund Husserl, the father of phenomenology, and Frege uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, it sort of split off the two camps with analytical philosophy going one way and then continental philosophy going the other. So you had the left bank continental types smoking the hashish in the left bank of Paris talking about difference, different, being an event, being a nothing, it's being in time. And then uh, the Fregean progeny in the austere Anglo-Saxon analytic philosophy, discussing how many you know, predicates get danced on the top of a pin. Uh, so in its dry, infertile um, uh, efforts, I would argue. But within both camps, in the 90s, as I say, there became a, a new seriousness where a thicker philosophy, I mean, thicker description, a, a more substantial, proper metaphysics, again, returned, along, as I said, with philosophy of chemistry, changing understanding of science and so forth. And I think it bodes well for the next 50 years. At least that would be my hope. Um, so, yes, it's my own take on it, but also it's there visibly within particular movements within philosophy itself. An enriched notion of phenomenology and a rich return to Aristotle, to big questions, a corrected understanding of science, which now realize is far is far richer, more dynamic, uh, less old-fashioned clunk click Lego building, rather more symphonic. And I think this is all coming together, and as I say, bodes well for the next 50 years. So um, how does nihilism get into the picture of philosophy here then? Uh, I mean, generally speaking, what is nihilism? Well, nihilism was first coined. But actually, if, funny enough, historically, it was first used to describe uh, Peter Lombard, who was a person who, uh, a theologian, mm -hmm. who did a, uh, his wrote, famous work called The Sentences, and the medievals did commentary on the sentences, like Aquinas did. It was part of the curriculum that you had to do this. But Peter Lombard's reading of Christology, the doctrine around the notion of the incarnation, was first described as nihilistic. That was the first use of the word. But philosophically, the first use of the word by was a German thinker called Jacobi. That's J-A-C-O-B-I. Jacobi, a friend of Haman, who was a friend of Kant. And Jacobi did, uh, in an open letter to Fichte, who was Kant's most famous student, he first used nihilism to describe Kant's system. Hmm. He said that Kant's philosophy led to nihilism. That's the first time a philosophy was used. It became popular uh, with Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, mm -hmm. who described himself as a nihilist. Although I wrote a book on nihilism, uh, which has chapters on people like 
certain medieval people, but also Spinoza, Kant, Hegel, Heidegger. But there's no chapter on Nietzsche. And people don't and know why is that? Because I don't think I think nihilism is not about self-declaration, which Nietzsche did. I am the Antichrist. I am dynamite. I am nihilism. Blah blah blah. Uh, Nietzsche was the great espresso for European culture, who had who who sort of squandered or wallowed in dogmatic slumbers, if you like. And so, really, in a way, Nietzsche was was a case of he was a great diagnostician. He diagnosed nihilism rather than advocated. He said we were nihilistic. We thought that the death of God meant nothing. We could have our iPhones and go on holiday for a couple of weeks a year and you know, collect degrees. Nothing really mattered. Everything would remain the same. And he was sort of furious about this. And that's he and he's really following Kierkegaard, Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, who had already diagnosed similarly. He bought an awful lot from Kierkegaard without actually admitting it. And um, so in a way, his con confronting nihilism signals that he himself was not nihilistic. Whilst if you look at Kant's philosophical system, he certainly didn't uh, declare himself a nihilist, but the logic at work, I agree with you, Kobe, leads to nihilism. A nihilism is where uh, the belief in nothingness. So... That can come out in many flavors. Uh, if we take a giraffe and we go, or Jimmy or Susie, two humans, and we go, oh, they're nothing but, in a reductive manner, a bunch of atoms. Mm -hmm. Or the giraffe is nothing but a bunch of chemicals and atoms. So in one way, we reduce everything. We flatline existence. It loses its pulse. Or we reduced, reduce phenomena in all our richness to dust. So it's no longer from dust we came and to dust we shall return, that great Hebrew mantra, but actually we came from dust and dust we remain. Nihilism is the belief in nothingness. And it can come in many, many forms, many flavors, as I said. And it can be, you can have soft nihilism, which is more of an implicit nihilism. You can see consumerist society being soft nihilism, where where the consumer thinks they're an individual choosing their products, but really they're colonized by legion of adverts and mm -hmm. conditionings. They are puppets to the market. And this is soft nihilism, yet it has hard consequences. Or you can have arch reductionists who explicitly try and eradicate uh, the circus and wonder of phenomena and reduce them to uh, nothing, or at least almost nothing, nothing significant, which can have horrendous consequences for ethics, um, for for politics, for beauty, truth, goodness, they've all gone. Like Elvis left the building maybe once upon a time, but truth, goodness and beauty have soon followed. And also reason will soon follow. And we end up with a sort of a Michel Henri, the great a French phenomenal just called barbarism. We end up in a, a climate of barbarism. We are barbaric because nothing, we, we master nature, we dominate it, we instrumentalize it. There's no pushback from the giraffe, the tree, the human. Uh, we control everything at our will. Uh, and that's, that's a thought, that is what nihilism looks like. But uh, I would like to try to understand a little bit better what, yep. not, what, what nothingness really means. Uh, because you mentioned Kant, for example. Uh, yeah. So, and I, I'm struggling. I'm struggling a little bit, and perhaps that that would lead us to the difference between uh, the sort of current cultural understanding uh, of nihilism that we have, that we people have, and uh, nihilism as a philosophy of nothingness, as you said, because, uh, I mean, uh, a few years ago, I remember reading Kant's uh, critique of pure reason and then the critique of practical reason. And, uh, I mean, perhaps in the critique of pure reason, it would be clearer because the part, the section where he talks about the, the antinomies and how you can't really prove, for example, through reason that um, time and space is eternal, that God exists, that you have free will and stuff like that. But then when it comes to 
uh, is more ethical stance when it comes to applying reason to ethics, that is practical reason in his words, let's say. Uh, he says, he basically says in the book that we have to assume that uh, several of those things are correct, like, for example, that the, the soul is immortal, that God exists, and all of that. So he's basically defending a sort of um, objective view of morality. I mean, that there, there are objective moral values that God exists. I mean, usually we tend to uh, pit nihilism against uh, religious beliefs, for example, beliefs in God, beliefs in objective moral truths, uh, beauty, and all of that. So uh, how is it that in the case of Kant, uh, his philosophy would lead to nihilism? I, I mean, for me personally, it's a little bit uh, difficult to understand. Uh, well, in many ways, first of all, you're right about pitting God against nihilism. I mean, Jacobi, the one who coined the term nihilism, as I said, in relation to Kant, says yeah. the choice becomes God or nothingness. He okay. actually couches it in those terms in his open letter to Fichte. Mm -hmm. uh, as for Kant, well, first of all, in the first critique, well, there are two ways here looking at it. In the second critique, the one you mentioned about morality and the soul being this, mm -hmm. Kant is Kant has a functionalist stance. We have to, these, ha these can only be regulative ideals, he calls them. They are only postulates, so the system functions. Okay. They can never be taken as objects of knowledge. He, he outlaws that, prohibits it. They merely allow the system to work. Like double yellow lines, you get a, a bucket of yellow paint, and you get your paintbrush and you put two yellow lines down the road and you're not allowed to park there. And that functions. And we don't park on it. If we do, we feel guilty. And if we feel guilty, we might get a fine from a traffic warden. It functions. But no one's going to suggest the two bits of yellow paint actually represent something real and really, really true. The same for the postulates in Kant. As I say, he prohibits them being actually true. He says what they do is they work. And that leads to an evolutionary analysis later on, because Kant is, in a sense, proto-evolutionary, because morality becomes that which keeps the tribe functioning. Ethics is, is evacuated of all content except pragmatic. Does it work in this system for this tribe to reduce some form of, it's like a form of conflict, conflict resolution. Yeah. So we have, you know, thy shalt not steal. But then, of course, we see the law back away during riots and everyone loots mm -hmm. uh, and so forth. So we, we, what keeps the system going? In the English courts, we have in every, uh, every court, it says, God and my right. Uh, because the legal system in Great Britain, the United Kingdom, is based on a Judeo-Christian heritage. But absent that, and make it merely regulative, it becomes nominal. And what you can do... Uh, and I'm obviously advocating this, but you can think about it if it's merely if it works. What helps it work? So we might have the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. So that comes through the Judeo-Christian tradition: I shall not kill, I shall not steal, and so forth. And that helps from from and from which arises the legal system, the rule of law, and so forth, mm -hmm. uh, which all rulers fall under. It's a form of transcendence. But like Kant, if it's merely a postulate, and any truth is prohibited, any knowledge is prohibited. Um, then it's very hard to see how you control that which functions well. By that I mean, for us, it might be the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. But in post-Weimar Republic, it was probably Mein Kampf that functioned well, giving the Germans a, 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 a religious sensibility, because religion just simply means to bind together, etymology. So it bound them together, it gave them a, a sense of direction, a sense of uh, norms of behavior, that which was encouraged, that was, and it functioned. And then it's very hard, unless you have a proper sense of ethics, to adjudicate between the Decalogue and Mein Kampf, because both are working within those contexts. But surely one wants to, unlike Kant, say that Mein Kampf is wrong and leads to evil, and the Decalogue tries to discourage evil and invoke something transcendent, the rule of law, pure ethical normativity, transcendent well, transcendent norms. We, we can't just have functionality. 
because as I said, it evacuated of all content. There was a very interesting book written by, uh, I like him because he's honest, uh, Alex Rosenberg, An Atheist Guide to Reality. And yeah, he I, I've up, had him on the show. So. Yeah, he's great. Uh, actually, I like his earlier articles about 10, 20 years ago on evolution. They're actually more interesting. But I like it when you, is there such a thing as ethics? No. What is morality? Ah, whatever makes you feel good. Is there meaning like nah? Mm-hmm. So the the double yellow line might work in our in our towns and cities, but we know it's just yellow paint. Who cares? But when we put people who've committed heinous crimes away in prison, we do tend to implicitly presume we're putting them away for good reasons because they've done something truly evil. Mm-hmm. Or have we, and can we admit it, and this is our nihilism, that we have only locked up people in prison for cultural inconvenience? They, they, they render our tribe, our system, incon- they're inconvenient to it. Or have they done something heinous? If it's something heinous, it's not nihilism. But then we have to give an account of why it's not nihilism. If it is malfunction, well, it is only cultural. And cultures change. Back to Mein Kampf, post-Weimar. Mm-hmm. That's it. Is it functional? Or is the function uh, woven in with form? suggesting or implicating something transcendent, thou shalt not, because it's evil. So that's the difference. Can't, oh, yes, and in the first critique, Kant system, in fact, in the book, in the chapter on Kant, I show each of his critiques causes a disappearing act. And, and the first one, first critique, the noumenal underwrites all phenomenal, which is to say all appearances, the tree, the giraffe, a newborn baby, no matter what, is merely an appearance and its real truth is the noumenal, which we can never access to. So any phenomena we see are chimera, illusions. Mm-hmm. It's the shadows behind them, which we never see, which are the real truth, the thing in itself. And the thing in itself, as later de- de- developed by people like Lacan, Zizek, and so forth, is, is the horror, the abyss, the slime, as Zizek says. It's the, it's the horribleness, the horror behind the beautiful appearance, the window dressing. It's the horror that lies behind appearance. And that is the abyss of the noumenal, of the first critique. The second critique is functional morality. Therefore, Mein Kampf is an equal candidate. Uh, and then the third critique, that's a different thing. I think he does problems there too. But yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's the functionality, which, which, is the, which, is the, which is the worrisome thing. Because serial killers probably have their own uh, modus operandi with, of functionality. And maybe they look behind the curtain in a Kantian way and just go into the luminal. So you and I are going, what are you doing to those people? And they're going, well, no, they're not really people. I mean, this is the thing we've got to realize. Someone like Thomas Metzinger, I don't know if you've had him on, uh, a philosopher of mine in Germany. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, people say, do you believe in God or not? Thomas Metzinger, you know, goes, no one has ever had a self. No self has ever existed. So I don't know what the serial killer is doing. It's another form of Sudoku. It's just functional. And you and I go, oh, that's dreadful. But he's just saying, this is just traffic signs. This is just yellow lines with yellow paint. You're just having a fuss over nothing. That's nihilism. Yeah, you know, that's very interesting because, I mean, when I think about Kent, and I guess many other people think about Kent uh, when it comes to he, his ethics, one of the things that comes to mind is the his categorical imperative. And I mean, at least up till now, I was interpreting it as meaning something like uh, universal moral truths that would ap- apply independently of the context, the cultural context, the social context, and all of that. But I mean, with what you just said in mind, would it then be the case that for Kant, different uh, moral values would apply in different societies in a more functionalist or pragmatic yeah. way? Well, first of all, I have to come out and defend Kant. I'm not trying to say he's a nihilist. Hmm. I'm trying to say that his philosophy leads to nihilism. Okay, right. So right. he's by no means a nihilist. He says some beautiful things, you know, that we shouldn't treat people as means to an end and so forth. We mm-hmm. should treat people as an end in themselves. So he's very imbued with his Lutheran background, his Christian background. And of course, he's not a nihilist, but it's about Jacobi's not accusing him of being a nihilist. 
Rather, he's saying his philosophy leads to nihilism. That's mm -hmm. my contention. Not at all by Kant. And so much of his work is beautiful and very powerful. But again, it's the law of unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. That's why Nietzsche's not in the book, but people like Kant are. Uh, and that's a very important cultural move, I think. Um, so Kant's categorical imperative, I would worry that it will fall again into a functionalist refrain, a, a logic. And it won't be able to control its consequences because we'll take it from here and apply it here. So if you're in the post-Weimar Republic, how would the categorical imperative of Nazi Germany pan out? Yeah, well, like, is there something irreducible in it or is it replaceable? It, does it alter with context? Even though it seems to be, he wants it to be universal and universal just means Catholic. The universal declaration of rights just means Catholic universal rights, universal, all human beings, which of course I'm a big fan of. Um, but that, but that's because I believe that ethics is transcendent, um, and I don't think, and I think functionalism deflates ethics into simply behavioral norms, um, and that's incredibly dangerous, incredibly dangerous. So yes, I defend Kant; he's not a nihilist. It's just by the, the law of unintended consequences, I think his philosophy accommodates or leads to a nihilistic. Uh, account of existence with a noumenal the thing in itself which we have no access is the truth uh and all appearances are that merely appearances whilst i think looking at you ricardo i don't think the the, the my phonological phenomenological awareness of you i do not think that's beholden to a noumenal mm -hmm. right the face of a human being is not something uh, epiphenomenal. Do you know epiphenomenal like the shadow cast by the real stoke? Mm -hmm. I think it's actually a, a, a uh, an iconic manifestation of Ricardo. Who um, and we do with functional analysis. People are, for example, reduced to their genomic sequence these days. Uh, you know, and I do think that the that wonderful refrain in Genesis where God says, "Where are you, Adam?" and that could easily be the big question of today. Where are you, Ricardo? Because for Rosenberg, for Metzinger, for the Churchlands, Paul and Patricia, for Dennett, all these people, I have to say, where are you, Ricardo, in their work? Because you will not find yourself there. You will be subsumed by, inverted commas, the noumenal. And I will right. lose your phenomenology, your irreducibility. And just like the Holocaust, the first definition of you, in some senses, the people lose their, where are you, Adam? They lose their name which is so important, have become a number, mm -hmm. sequence of numbers. And we have all different variants of that nowadays with the algorithm taking over uh, and so forth, where we are dehumanized unbeknownst to ourselves. That's nihilism. So in your understanding, would you say that uh, reductionism is a form of nihilism? or not? Yes, not reduction, but reductionism. Uh, mm -hmm. I actually think the book I'm working on at the moment, uh, which is really like physics, chemistry, and it's trying to show how the, the way we've thought of science, for example, and the relation between disciplines has been erroneous for since the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, and, uh, for example, the, the debate between reduction and emergence, I think it's a non-starter, and it's very old-fashioned. Uh, reduction and, and emergence are intertwined. They're a happy marriage. It's not. Uh, they're not actually enemies. Reductionism. Uh, I mean, I think emergentism is a form of reduction. I mean, it's it's ironic when you actually look at the details. They're, they're both placeholders for I know not what really. Um, reductionism is or scientism that was quoted by, that was coined by Hayek, I think that term um, back in the day, and reductionism coined by a guy called uh, oh in the forties. I can't remember his name now, but anyway. Uh, where the, the, the motive behind it, the ideological motive behind it is exactly to render all that we see, like Kant, an epiphenomena, epiphenomena, merely shadows. And the rock which casts the shadow are the democratine atoms. And it's the only what Plato would say, the really real. All else is just stuff and nonsense without any reality, validity, integrity, and if that's the case, again, as I say, existence is flatlined. The pulse is gone. So, yes, I think reductionism reduces us to dust whilst breathing. 
and that is a that therefore the legal system, ethics, desire, truth, goodness, and beauty all are just candy floss. They're nothing. They're board games. They're the yellow lines with the white, the yellow paint, you know, the yellow lines, and that's all they are. Whilst I just don't think and I and it and I think reductionism's wholly incoherent, but I don't think reduction's a bad thing. Reduction can be a brilliant thing. Uh, and I don't think, as I said, I don't think reduction and emergence are actually enemies. I actually think they're mutually reinforcing aspects. <laughs> but do you think that it makes sense to distinguish between different forms of nihilism? And here I'm not talking about what some people attribute to Nietzsche, that is the supposed distinction between passive and active nihilism, but more about nihilism applied to different areas of philosophy or knowledge, like, for example, moral nihilism, that is, there are no moral truths whatsoever or no objective moral truths to be found out. And, uh, for example, epistemic nihilism, there is no truth at all with a capital T. We can even talk about perhaps aesthetic nihilism, there's no beauty at all. Uh, existential nihilism, life has no meaning. Do you think that it makes sense to distinguish between forms of nihilism like the ones I mentioned? Or is there just nihilism with a capital N, let's say? I, th I think they're fruit of the same tree. Hmm. I think it's useful, especially if you're teaching and wanting to look at an aspect and, and highlight it and emphasize it. I mean, it's sort of strange. <laughs> I mean, you'll have... You, you'll have uh, lecturers at universities you know making a living writing books out of advocating one of those nihilisms say in terms of philosophy of mind there's no such thing as a human um for example yet they'll be out in the picket lines protesting that their pensions are being reduced i mean it's so contradictory so in the lecture hall they're going there's no such thing as mind then you see them on tuesday out in the picket line saying we keep our hands off our pensions this is not just <laughs> I mean, it's totally incoherent and inconsistent. Uh, so I always find that quite funny. Um, and, they, and in a way, it's a very bourgeois thing. They People take extreme views as a way of adolescents showing off, and they make money out of it, uh, get a name for themselves, but they don't live by it. Uh, I, I find that very rare. Uh, I think the soft nihilism is more um, pervasive, the consumerist one and so forth even selling our books. I mean, I don't know why Alex Rosenberg bothered writing his book, Atheist Guide to Reality, because if he believed what he wrote, he shouldn't have written it. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I'm glad he did because I enjoyed it, even though it was incoherent. He shouldn't have written it. Um, it, it no, I don't understand why he wrote it, what reasons he gave, or who wrote it, for what reason. All things are transcending his argument to actually allow the phenomena of the book itself and the author of the book. It's nonsense. <laughs> but anyway... Uh, I do think it's useful to distinguish so we can actually get our heads around it. But I do think that, as I said, I would say that they are progeny or fruit of the same general truth. That It all stems from life is meaningless. Say that's our meta position. And there you'll have micro ones of that. Therefore, we have to eradicate beauty. We have to eradicate ethics. We have to eradicate the person. We have to eradicate to keep this tenable. So there's the meta position, these are the micro you know, avenues off of tributaries, which lead back to this reservoir of no nothingness, this abyss. Because if you have one thing pop up and it's irreducible, like uh, that's an evil act. Well, from that one declaration, you can build a whole expansive universe again, full of meaning replete with truth, goodness and beauty. So it's incumbent upon this reservoir to eradicate, sort of, what's that game you, whack-a-mole, it has to hit the, every time something good pops up, it has to hit it back down again. So it has to go around all different sub-disciplines, hitting it with the hammer. Darn you get beauty, darn you get truth, darn you get justice, darn you get person, because how is it going to give an account of them? And then the, the, the philosophers making their money from such things shouldn't be on the picket line claiming that uh, the government or whatever, the university powers are being unjust. I don't know where injustice comes from. I have no idea given their stance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I can you, when they get burgled, they're on the phone to the police. <laughs> but, but do you think that, uh, logically speaking, it is possible for someone to be 
uh, one sort of nihilist, like, for example, just a moral nihilist and not all the other kinds of nihilist or, or, or to extend nihilism into all the other domains? Or do you think that's, that's not coherent? It's a good question. It's very hard. I always have this image that, you know, your, your granny knits you a jumper and then it, it, it for Christmas. And then if it has one little bit of the thread sticking out, and if you pull the one thread, eventually the jumper unfolds and everything falls apart. I think it takes an awful lot of delicate, balancing, sophisticated hypocrisy. Because one will hemorrhage into the other if one is consistent. Mm -hmm. Because if there's moral nihilism, you have to say, well, why is there moral nihilism? And to underwrite that, you're probably going to have to get rid of ethics. You're probably going to have to get rid of people. Because if I rock, if someone walks up and hits Jimmy over the head with a hammer, the moral nihilist is going to say, well, nothing's happened. Well, why has nothing happened? Well, he's going to, have to say, because Jimmy doesn't exist. And when Susie hit him with the hammer, she doesn't exist either. And nothing really worthwhile writing home about happened. So it's going to hemorrhage. But in bourgeois terms, again, we do a wonderful balancing act of hypocrisy, hence out striking for justice, uh, whilst declaring that people don't exist. So I don't know. I think it's just hypocrisy and it's self-serving. And maybe in a Darwinian self, Darwinian sense, we, you know, it's survival. Uh, so we live by lies, uh, useful lies, useful fictions, back to functioning. Maybe our society is simply about functioning. And as I said, conflict resolution or suppression, the invention of marriage, for example, stops everyone gets, you know, <laughs> the crude way evolution, at least someone gets one lover. So everyone's like killing everyone because, you know, like the gorillas, one's got a grey back, a silver back. He's got all the ladies. And then everyone's, oh, everyone's annoyed. At least we have a social contract, invent marriage, put signs on our fingers, and then everyone's a bit calmer. And there are rules and regulations like playing golf or cricket. There are rules and regulations to how it's conducted. And we live by our yellow lines. And therefore, there's less conflict. So it's purely a functional thing. So we can get along in our evolutionary sense of surviving in a purely functionalist manner. But if you peek behind the curtain, seething uh, hypocrisy lieth there, and I would say the abyss. The abyss. So, uh, but because when we were talking about Kent a minute ago, uh, you mentioned that he, at least to a certain extent, was a proto-pragmatist and a proto-evolutionist. Let's get into evolutionary theory. So do you think that there's uh, a necessary relationship between evolutionary theory and nihilism, that one necessarily derives from the other or not? No. I think what happened, right, look at it this way. Do you remember when the, when the university was invented? Do you remember this, Ricardo? No. Do you, do you know this? When the first university? The, <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, it was a thousand years ago in Bologna, right? Mm. You know, our Bolognese comes from Bologna. So you can imagine three or four monks sitting around a thousand years ago. And Jimmy turns to Frank and and says, you know, I think we should invent, uh, set up a, and he says, blah, 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 blah. Because Frank's going, what, what did you just say? Remember the word university hasn't been said before. And he goes, what was that? And he says, a university. So what's that about? Well, we're going to set up an institution, a university, because we need to give an adequate account of the universe. And the universe comes in so many aspects we're going to have to have so many disciplines and we're going to study them. Just like there's one universe, we're going to have a university. And therefore, we're going to need geology. We're going to need politics. We're going to need literature. We're going to need psychology. All under. So we can even approach an adequate account of existence in this universe. Wow. And in a sense, that model is the one we should take. So evolution, any theory, any discipline, which we said at the very beginning, which begins to approach ideology by the pretense of full autonomy, autarky, and so forth, and that it's not dependent on other uh, uh, disciplines, fractures the university as it seeks to become the master discourse. And any lone discipline left to its own devices will, as I say, go into ideology and I think will lead to nihilism. Evolutionary theory, uh, likewise. 
But when it is mediated by metaphysics, when it is mediated by other disciplines of which it informs and of which it is informed by, uh, no, it doesn't lead to nihilism. Only if it's the only game in town. Yeah. So when Alex Rosenberg, your, the, your friend who you interviewed, he, would, he actually advocates nihilism a link to evolutionary theory. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a wonderful paper he wrote in a, uh, about 2000 called Darwinian Nihilism. It's a good paper, and he lambasts Dennett and Dawkins for being too sort of Anglican uh, uh, and being too cucumber sandwich and soft and not taking it right to the nth degree. And I agree with them on that. But I don't think evolutionary theory, I don't think any theory can be standalone. Uh, and, and also, evolutionary theory is not monolithic. It's not univocal. It's, and it's developing. I mean, I remember once saying to Dawkins, when I met him in Oxford, Richard Dawkins, and I said to him, and I quote, or paraphrase, I said, you know, you wrote that Darwinism has been triumphant at the end of the 20th century, but in the 21st, it will most likely change beyond complete and utter recognition. I said, well, if that's the case, how have you based your atheism on a view or an account of a science which you've just said is going to change completely? They said, oh, I didn't write that. And I said, yes, you did. I said, no, I didn't. I said, you did. Page 16, middle of the page on the left-hand side. And I quoted it I quoted it directly from this book. And I went, oh, well. I said, you can't. You know, the, the theology of philosophy that marriage, marries the science of today will be the widow of tomorrow. Because it's always changing. Evolutionary theory is becoming more and more sophisticated. It's using much more mathematics, much more uh, geometry, topology, uh, it, it, uh, we're finding a cross-pollination between physics and chemistry, evolution, neurology. There are wonderful platonic patterns that are popping up all over the place. That's why 21st century uh, science is so exciting and by no means nihilistic. And it's actually expansive rather than reductive. It is replete with emergence, uh, replete with complication and absolutely dynamic and not dead Democritean atomism like these little building blocks, one potato, two potato, three potato, four. It's actually symphonic and dynamic uh, and having to employ so many disciplines all at once to give a coherent account. It's really very, very sexy. It's really good. And so this dead science, scientific paradigm, it's degenerate. So the old fashioned passe building block, as I say, view of clunk, click, building block, clumsy, uh, view of evolution is gone. As I say, it's replete many disciplines, many of which are dynamic, invoke emergence necessarily, and invite further uh, investigation. So it's actually very expansive uh, and exciting and the opposite of nihilism. Now, if you think you can only, only, not partially, but only base ethics on an evolution analysis, you'll only be left with the functional point that we had. And Mein Kampf will be up there with uh, Jewish and Christian scriptures, for example. Uh, and you will not be able to discriminate because there'll be a retrospective. Oh, that worked. Ergo, therefore, it's good. And that can be anything. And that's very scary. But if you don't base it solely in evolution analysis, if you supplement it, almost back to our subalternation, we said at the beginning of Aristotle's term, with other approaches, uh, it will be expansive, and this functionalist analysis will not carry the day, and therefore not carry us all away. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, and this will probably be my last question. So, uh, I mean, but with what exactly? Of course, you've already mentioned some of that, but with, with what exactly would you supplement evolutionary theory? Because I would imagine that, as you said, if we have just evolutionary theory or if we rely just on it of course there's a very basic and easy argument to be made that even going back to the basics of it because we are organisms that evolved under certain evolutionary pressures in particular environmental contexts that uh, that uh, completely explains why we experience the world in a certain way, why we have certain moral values and not others. And I mean, 
that is to say that if we have evolved differently in a different environmental context and under different evolutionary pressures, then uh, our uh, epistemology, our ethics, and etc., would have been completely different, right? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the simplest way, given time, to sum up is that. First of all, even evolutionary theory, as I said, is replete with other disciplines that it employs. And we can't just give one aspect of it, which tends to be the sort of tabloid version of it, where we have just a survival of the fittest. And it's the flux of phylogeny, yeah? Phylogeny, mm -hmm. the, the timeline of history, you know, from the little right. swamp up to the elephant. Mm -hmm. Not only do you have a biology of becoming, but concomitantly, simultaneously, you have to have a biology of being. It's not just a survival of the fittest, it's also the arrival of the fittest. So think of it this way, Ricardo. You have the survival of the fittest on the theatre, on the play. You, you, watch, you go in the theatre, you see it on the, on, the, on the stage, and there's the lion fighting the antelope or whatever, and that, you see it all the phylogeny work out, who's going to survive. But the theatre itself is the biology of being, the structures that invoke include a sort of not only mathematical but metaphysical uh, categories. And so, because you... Without the biology of being, you won't even notice, almost like Heraclitus, you won't notice the biology of becoming, the flux of phylogeny. It would be mere aggregation. Nothing will have evolved. You need the biology of being to say, Jimmy, species evolve, or this species evolve. You require structure. A biology of being concomitantly informs and enables a biology of becoming. So we put on the play. The play is a particular survival story. But the theatre itself, the stage itself, the, those logical possibilities, those structures are, are, are what enable the becoming, but they're not a biology of becoming, but a biology of being. Not just the survival of the fittest, but the arrival of the fittest. There are almost platonic patterns. Take, for a very simple example, take uh, the, the phenomenon of homoplasy or convergence. You've probably heard about that. You know, mm -hmm. convergence, you know, the, the octopus eyes, the camera eye, just like human eye. We're not, we're not linked. But that goes right down to protein folding and um, all manner of molecular biological, uh, which we see in the genome requires such a sophisticated topology. You have, it's like going right back to Plato just to get our proteins going. And so what we're seeing is this biology of being alongside or mediating the biology of becoming. It's only we leave biology becoming on its own where you end up with this nihilism. But the big consequence of that will be the end of evolution because nothing will evolve. You mm -hmm. need something to evolve somewhere at some time. Those are categories and they are substantial. Therefore, you need a biology of being to secure those markers so you can actually notice change. Does that make sense? Uh, yes, yes, it makes perfect sense. So, um, but just because, uh, just before, sorry, we finished the interview uh, is there anything else you'd like to add to sort of this relationship between evolutionary theory and nihilism potentially or nihilism just in general? I, I, yeah, I'll, I'll give you one cultural thing. I think mm -hmm. that people that uh, maybe like Rosenberg and people uh, of like that, and certainly people like Dawkins who are like sort of lapsed Anglicans. Uh, I mean, you could tell he's an Anglican, it's so obvious. Um, it, they're almost disappointed, lapsed fundamentalists. The reason why you can, you can almost use it like a litmus test. The reaction to evolution, if, it is, if the inference that is generated by it from that reaction is one that's negative, you have to think, well, what would it take for it to be otherwise, for you to think of it as positive? They have almost got a fundamentalist notion in their head of what it should look like if it wasn't to be disappointing, they look at evolution, it doesn't match the fundamentalist picture, therefore they're disappointed, therefore it lapses into nihilism. So actually their understanding of what it would take to be otherwise is very, very impoverished. They're actually lapsed fundamentalists, like spoilt adolescents rejecting it because it, so it's, it's, I'll give you a simile. It's a bit like the fundamentalist that goes to Bible college one or university and studies biblical studies and finds out that Moses may not have written you know, Genesis or something, or Exodus. And they go, oh, no, and they lose their faith, which means, and they become an atheist and so forth. But that means they've been, they remain lapsed fundamentalists their whole life because they've never thought that the, under, their understanding 
of what it would take to read Genesis or Exodus or the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures in any other way but a fundamentalist way was possible. Therefore, their atheism, their nihilism, is a mere image or mere, the mere reflection of their fundamentalist position. That's why they tend to go on a new bandwagon, which is the fundamentalist one of an evolutionary sort. They're basically fun, religious fundamentalists who've lost their faith. Therefore, they become evolutionary fundamentalists. <laughs> okay, that's very interesting. So uh, just before we go, would you like to tell people where they can find you and your work on the internet? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I'm not really much of an uh, internet person. Um, I, there's a documentary I made in Evolution or the BBC, BBC Two, uh, uh, which you can find on top documentaries if you put in my name, Did Darwin Kill Gold? Um, I interviewed Daniel Dennett in that and my book, Darwin's Pious Idea, which is in a number of languages. Uh, and if you'd like to read that, uh, and maybe I'll come back at some point and discuss the new work I'm doing on physics and chemistry and, and neurology and so forth, which your viewers might find interesting and exciting. Because the 20th century, when you actually look at it properly, the actual science done is incredibly exciting, but culturally we have not caught up with it. We are very passe, we are very dusty and old fashioned and atomistic. Uh, what's happening and what's so beautiful at the moment is the cross-pollination that is absolutely necessarily rife within thinking nowadays. That's why I said it halfway through, I do think the next 50 years could look really very, very exciting. Um, uh, very exciting. So I'm going to talk about that. And the new book is going to be called The Assuma for Science After Naturalness, Soul and the Marriage of Discourse. So we'll, we'll talk about that maybe in a couple of years or a year or so time. But um, yeah, Darwin's past idea of the book and did Darwin kill God on top documentaries. You can find that if you wish. And you can always write to me uh, if you say non-rude things. Okay. <laughs> Great. So I will be leaving links to some of your work in the description box. Of oh, yeah, some YouTube, some YouTube uh, five minute uh, why study evolution. I think there's one on nihilism. There's one on phenomenology. There's one on life before. Is there life before death? Which is a big question. Because people usually say, oh, is there life after death? Well, actually, if you figure out how there's life before death, it sort of half answers that question. The, the real question we've had to face is, is there life before death? Yeah. So you can find those on YouTube. And, uh, and what is theology using an apple? And it explains all the different disciplines by just looking at an apple, uh, which is almost like the notion of the university and the universe. So you can find it on YouTube. Okay. Great. So, uh, Dr. Cunningham, thank you so much thank again for much. taking the time to come on the show. It's been a real pleasure to everyone. And I hope to talk to you again somewhere in the future. So. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing and to keep the channel sustainable, please consider supporting it on Patreon or PayPal. The links are in the description box of this interview. And if you like this interview, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check the website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzkan, Blanchett Perga, Larson, Jerry Muller, Hans Frederick Sunda, Bernard Seixas, Herbert Gintis, Olaf, Alex, Jonathan Visser, Adam Kessel, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Henry Kalenia, John Connors, Philip Force Connolly, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Nassio, Zup, Mark Neves, Colin Holbrook, Simon Columbus, Phil Cavanagh, George Pinha, Michael Stormier, Samuel Andrea, Francis Forte, Nunes, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Harl Herzog, Nun Machado, Jonathan Leibrandt, John Nierstan, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, João Eira, Tom Hummel, Sardis France, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dez, Araújo, Romain Roach, Diego Londonio Correa, Yannick Puntara, Danners Mani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pablo Stazewski, Nelek Bach, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, Saima Fzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paul Tolentino, João Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Doug, Douglas Fry, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzka, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wiseman, Morton Eichland, Dr. Bird, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Mau Maria, Paul George Arnaud, Luke Lowacki, Georgios Theophanes, Chris Williamson, Peter Wolosin, 
David Williams, Ruth Towell, Diogo Costa, Anton Erickson, Charles Murray, Alex Shaw, Amari Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Pedro Bonilla, Ziegler, João Barbosa, Bangalore Atheists, Larry D. Lee Jr., Old Herrigman, Sterry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Gracies, Tom Roth, DRPMD, and Igor N., And special thanks to my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniet, Tom Vanagdam, Bernard Ugni, Curtis Dixon, Belnick Miller, Vega Giddy, Thomas Trumbull, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, John Carlo Montenegro, Robert Lewis and Alni Cortiz, and to my executive producers, Michel Rogieski, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.